Can you hear me now? Much better. Thank you. Well, one of the difficulties of studying through the scriptures is that they are ancient documents. We are in 2024 Western society, and we are separated by the original audience, by culture, geography, technology, and over 2,000 years of other things. And a separation can cause us some challenges, making it sometimes difficult to relate to the text. These difficulties can even be true of some of those texts that are most relatable, even like Jesus' parables. And so, for instance, we've noticed the last couple of weeks that these three parables in Luke 15 were taught by Jesus because he is confronting grumbling Pharisees. They're grumbling because they're upset that Jesus is receiving tax collectors and sinners, those that they would look upon with much disdain. But this disdain that Israel had towards these tax collectors was really quite something unique and specific of their time. They were viewed as such wretched individuals that they were viewed as unforgivable, undeserving of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so even though many of us might not like IRS agents and taxes in general, our feelings towards them don't really relate whatsoever to what these Israelites felt towards these tax collectors. So because we're so separated from that text, when we read through Luke 15 and we see tax collectors are gathering to listen to Jesus, it's really not a big deal to some of us. We probably feel the same way about this prodigal son that we learned about last week as well. It's Every family seems to have a prodigal nowadays. And some of these actions of those prodigals, we see, yeah, they were shameful, but it's, it's really not much of a big deal to us in our timeline. But to the actions of the Jews, these actions of a tax collector, these actions of a fair, or uh, sorry, of this prodigal son were utterly disgraceful. They were disgusting. These individuals were never to be associated with. You'd be dirty for just talking to them. So as we try to contextualize the scenario to feel the full weight of what's going on, we need to ask the question, who are the types of individuals in our lives that we would look at with the same sort of eyes with disgust and disdain that these Pharisees had towards these tax collectors and prodigals. In other words, who do you look at as though they're scum, as though they're wretched, disgusting or dirty? Who are the individuals that you would look at and say, man, these individuals are too dirty that I don't dare associate with them? For us to feel the full weight of what's going on here, we need to try to put ourselves in the shoes of these Pharisees. So what if, instead of it was tax collectors that were gathered to see Jesus, what if it were the known drug dealers that were preying on innocent children in the South End going to parks in their streets? What if it was the abortionist doctors and nurses that came and were sitting with Jesus and having conversations with him? What if it was the adult film producers and directors that Jesus was associating with? Or worse, what if it was sexual predators rapists and pedophiles that Jesus had a meal with and was proclaiming this message of the kingdom of God. Do these scenarios make us squirm a bit? If they do, then I've done a good job at contextualizing what is going on here. We might not struggle with looking down on tax collectors with the same air of self-righteousness that these Pharisees had, but I'd reckon for each of us there are individuals 
like the ones that I just mentioned, that we do struggle with, that we look down upon with the same sort of pharisaical, self-righteous condemnation. And we need to understand that it is this self-righteous grumbling that Jesus is confronting in Luke 15. It's the same sort of attitude that he has come to correct and to condemn with these three parables. So before we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time of worship that we've had already. God, grateful to be able to sing praises to you on the throne or to your son who was slain as now the land that is standing, the lamb that is standing as though he was slain. Father, you are holy and you are worthy of our praise. God, you are worthy of worship and we sing that to you this morning. God, as we look at Luke 15, God, I pray that you would help us, help us to see our own wicked ways, our self-righteous tendencies that are so shameful. God, help us to have the eyes of Christ, Lord, and help us to be those that are humbled to the core by our own sin. So we ask that you'd be with our time this morning in worship, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Let's do a quick recap of where we were last week. Jesus begins this parable by telling us that there was a man that had two sons, and beginning in verse 11, he starts telling us about all the details of this younger son. And let's just be reminded about how despicable this younger son is. He's a guy that asks for an inheritance from his father, something that should only be given to him at the death of his father. And a few days after receiving such an inheritance, he moves far away, and we're meant to understand that he's moving to a Gentile nation where he's forsaking his family, his nation, and his God. He shamefully blows this inheritance in his wild, reckless, sinful living, and in desperation, he has to hire himself to the unclean Gentiles of that nation. And this unclean Gentile sends him to work with unclean animals. And in desperation, because he's blown all of his money, he's not acted in wisdom, when he is hungry because a famine comes, he has to go and start working with these pigs, and he longs to eat what the pigs themselves eat. It's desperation. He's broken essentially every moral code in the law. And yet he is so devalued that these Gentiles who are owners of these pigs don't even give him food for the pigs because he is less valuable than the pigs themselves. There's really nothing more that Jesus could have added to this story to make this person more shameful, more despicable. By comparison, the Pharisees would have looked at this prodigal probably in the same way that they would have looked at these tax collectors. The sins of both the prodigal and the tax collectors are so sinful, they're so visible in their plain sight that they're both viewed as wretched scum, unforgivable, unworthy of mercy. And though judgment is what this prodigal sinner deserves, what he receives is absolutely shocking. When he's away in this foreign land, He experiences what can only be described by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and he sees plainly for the first time his sinful ways. And because he is brought to himself, he comes to himself, he goes and he seeks after the Father. And incredibly, while this father is looking and he sees his son far off in the distant land, before the son even has a chance to utter a word of repentance, the father runs with mercy, initiating reconciliation with this wretched son. He falls on him. He kisses him. 
and he embraces him. The son is moved to tears and he moves to confession and he says, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against God in heaven. And remarkably, this father doesn't bring judgment on him. He doesn't just say, you're forgiven, now come work for me. No, he puts him in a place of honor. He gives him new clothes, a new robe, the signet ring, the crest, the family crest on his ring. He puts shoes on him and he calls for the fattened calf to be slaughtered so they can celebrate. This son that was dead, that was lost, has been found and it is worthy of rejoicing in praise. This is a powerful story so far. And it confronts this false ideology, this misconception that the Pharisees had and that they've been teaching and believing for so many years. It's this understanding that even the most vile sinners, like this prodigal, and yes, like these tax collectors, can find mercy, compassion, and forgiveness and restoration through the Father. But Jesus isn't finished with these scribes. There's still another truth grenade. We've been saying that these parables are like grenades. There's another truth grenade that he is going to unhinge and he's going to drop in the laps of these Pharisees. There's another false ideology that he has to correct. And it's this false ideology, this understanding that they don't understand that you can be just as lost doing good works and acts of service and faithfulness to God as someone who is walking in blatant and open rebellion against God. Let me say that again. You can be just as lost as someone when you're doing good works and acts of service to God can be just as lost as someone who is walking in blatant and open rebellion against God. And Jesus is going to use his older son to teach that truth. So without further ado, let's jump in. If you guys have your Bibles, Luke 15, let's begin in verse 25. And we're finally introduced to this older Son. Remember, the older son in a family would be the one that would be honorable. He would be the one that is the heir, the one that carries the legacy. In society, they would be the one that would be well respected. And Luke tells us, he says this in verse 25 Now, this older son was in the field. Now, we should notice that there's a subtle, but there's a major contrast between this older brother and the younger son. When we're introduced to the younger son back in, in verse 11, From the get-go, we're almost seeing that this son is doing everything wrong from the very beginning. He he starts off bad and he continues walking in this downward spiral of sin. But here, this older brother, though it's brief statement, he was in the field. He is seemingly where he is supposed to be and he is doing what he is supposed to be doing. Unlike his younger brother, he hasn't left home. He hasn't abandoned his responsibilities. From all outward appearances, this older brother seems to be fulfilling his responsibility as the son. He's working in the family fields, which would have been a respectable occupation in Jewish society. And after a long day's work out in the field, his son comes back to the house. In verse 25, he returns to what is obviously a party. There's music, there's dancing, there's all kinds of celebration. It's a surprise party, in other words, but it's one that's obviously not being thrown for him. The party has clearly started without him. Naturally, the son makes an inquiry as to what's going on. Verse 26. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. 
And perhaps this is the first indication or the first clue from Jesus that there is a little bit of tension between this father and this son. The son doesn't go to the father and ask what this is about. No, he summons a servant to come and talk to him. And the servant breaks the news. Verse 27, your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. This music that you hear, this parting that's going on, this great celebration, this feast, all these guests are, that are in your home, it's because your brother has returned. And your father has celebrated his return with this feast of feasts. And notice, he says, it's because he has received him back safe and sound. This is actually one word in the original language. And it has both physical and kind of social connotations with it. In other words, he's returned in good health physically. He's not dead. He's returned well, kind of in his right frame of mind, in good working order. But socially, he has been received well by the Father. He's been restored to the family and rehabilitated. He's back in good functioning order with the Father. This is another climax point in the parable. With the way that this brother left, no one could have ever imagined him coming back home, especially coming back home the way that he did. He left sick. He was broken. He was a wretched individual from every account with no appearances of ever coming back home. Again, that's why the father says that he was as good as dead. But now he has returned well in his right frame of mind, in working order. He is convicted and he is repentant of his sins. And this relationship that this brother fractured with his son, with his father, with the shameful treason of his actions, has been restored by the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of the father. This family was fractured because of what the son did, and now it has been restored. This is incredible news. It's really quite miraculous news if you start to think about it. And the father has rightly called for this incredible celebration. But the climax is how is this brother going to respond to this news? Let's keep reading. Verse 28. Then he became angry and did not want to go in. The brother refuses to join the celebration and this is a huge deal that we can't miss. This is the first time in three parables that the call for celebration has actually been met with rejection. Think back on the shepherd when the, the shepherd finds the sheep and he calls his friends and family to celebrate. It says, Jesus says that they celebrated and it was like the celebration of God in heaven. When the woman finds her coin, she calls for a party and she calls all her friends to gather. And it's even more magnificent. It's like God celebrating with his angels in heaven. But now with the greatest news out of all three parables of a son, a soul that has been found, this son rejects the father. Those listening would have been able to see that. They would have stopped dead in their tracks to see that this glorious news has now been rejected. The son is angry 
as what's transpiring. He wants nothing to do with this celebration. Now, if we start to think about the father's reaction in comparison to this older son's, these things couldn't really stand farther apart, could they? Let's actually start to think about this for a little bit. The father sees the son while the son is far away off before he has an, any word of repentance that he's uttered. And what does this father respond with? He responds with compassion when his son is still far off in this distant land of sin. The older brother hears that the son, his younger brother, has returned well, which implies that he is repentant of his transgressions. And how does he respond? Not with compassion, but with incredible anger. The older, the, sorry, the father, who was the one that was sinned against, upon seeing his son has such compassion that he's moved to reconciliation. But the older brother, who really hasn't been sinned against, hears what's going on and he wants nothing to do. He wants to maintain separation from the son. The father who was shamefully treated upon his son's repentance offers forgiveness and restoration. But this older brother who has really not borne any short sort of shame from this prodigal hardens his heart and he refuses to celebrate what has transpired. We should notice that there is a major similarity here between the scribes and the Pharisees and this older brother in Luke 15. These sinners and these tax collectors that have gathered to hear Jesus preach about repentance and forgiveness, this is great news. What's even better news is that some of these tax collectors will hear Jesus' word and they'll actually be cut to the heart by Jesus' word. They, they're going to be repentant like this younger son. They're going to come to themselves and they're going to acknowledge their sinful ways and they're going to be restored into the family of God. Levi does this earlier in Luke chapter 5 and in just a short few verses, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is going to do this in Luke 19. And yet, these Pharisees are here and they respond to such news with anger in callousness, in disgust. The condition of their heart shows that even though on the outside they're maybe doing the right things like this older brother, the condition of their heart reveals a different matter altogether. I liked what one pastor said about this. They act as offended insiders when they're really resentful outsiders. So what's this father going to do with this resentful son. Let's keep reading. Verse 28. So his father came out and pleaded with him. The older son obviously thinks his anger is justified. And as a result, this older son does not come to himself as the younger brother did. The younger brother knew that his actions were wrong and sinful against his family and against God. And he comes to himself and he comes to repent. But this older brother feels no weight of conviction. And since he doesn't come to himself, notice that it is the father that comes to him. Which, by the way, culturally speaking, this would have been a massive deal. Here the father is throwing perhaps what is the most grand and public event that he's ever put on. 
It's the fattened calf. It is the, the feast of feasts. And yet his firstborn, his son, his heir, the one who's supposed to carry on his family legacy, is publicly shaming his father by standing at the door and refusing to go in. With this public stunt, the father could be well justified for bringing down his wrath on his son, for disciplining him, for shaming him in front of the entire guest. How dare you treat your father this way? But notice, the father moves with compassion and grace, and he initiates the process of reconciliation with this son who has also shamed him. The younger son, with the younger son, he, the father risks the shame associated with running. In this instance, the father also risks the shame with leaving his guests unattended. This most gracious father pleads with this lost son to come and join the celebration. Well, how is this son going to respond? As we find out, he too has been preparing a speech. You know, we observed the speech last week with the younger son, and a lot of us could really relate to that. Prodigals chasing our sin, being drawn to repentance and faith and confession of sin without any excuse. That's something that we can relate to. But this speech perhaps is one that, quite unfortunately, we probably relate to all the more. Notice the self-righteous speech from the older son, verse 29. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Despite this father's pleas, the older son appears to be unfazed in his anger. Instead, it seems that this first interaction has hardened him all the more. And a cultural respect and deference was, with elders was something that was very, very important. This son refuses to address his father with any type of reference. Notice he doesn't say, sir. He doesn't go to his father and say, dear father. He doesn't say, father. Instead, he looks at him and he says, look. Look. It would be like one of us going and saying, look here, bud. Listen up, buddy. I've got a bone to pick with you. This son feels as if he has suffered an injustice. He doesn't have a righteous anger towards his brother for harming the father the way he did. That would kind of be an understandable reaction. He, he could be angry at his brother for shaming his father and shaming the name of the family. And so he could respond with anger towards his brother. He doesn't go on this spiel to defend his father's honor and righteousness and indignation. He doesn't even really seem to be angry at the brother here, does he? Instead, he's angry at the father. The actions of the father. He is incensed to what his father has done. And verses 29 and 30 get to the heart of the matter. It says this, he feels like he has done right by the father. Listen here, dad, I haven't left the homestead like your other son, who I'm not going to mention. I didn't abandon my responsibilities and my ob obligations as serving you as heir. 
Instead, I have fulfilled my responsibilities. I've done all the right things, and I've served you for many, many years. The implication is absolutely clear. This older brother is keeping score between he and his younger brother, and it's not even a close game. The older brother has mercy ruled this younger brother, if we were to put it in comparison, in terms of service. And the son isn't done with his speech. He turns from service, looked at, I've served you faithfully for year upon year upon year upon year, to obedience. Again, this younger son doesn't, this older brother doesn't mention his younger brother just yet, but the implication is clear. Not only have I ran up the score on my brother in terms of service to you, it's a no contest in terms of obedience by comparison to that wretched younger son of yours. Unlike him who openly shamed you for years, I have never disobeyed a single one of your commands. I've served you faithfully year after year after year. I've been upright in every single way. I've been faithful in obedience for year after year after year. And in comparison with this shameful older brother, I win, Dad. Dad, with that one, you split the inheritance. With that one, you slaughtered the fattened calf. But for me, your dutiful, obedient son, you never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. With what we know about this father, it's hard to believe that there is much truth with that last claim from this son. Though each of his sons have deserved discipline and wrath, For their shameful behavior, this father has proven himself to be incredibly merciful and gracious, slow and abounding in mercy. But the proud and the self-righteous always feel like they are not treated as well as they deserve. The The older brother feels like he is owed some sort of preferential treatment from his father because of his works of obedience. We can relate to this sentiment, can't we? There are others in our midst who appear to be less faithful than us, and yet they get the treatment that we desire. It can be with jobs. It can be with certain marriages. It can be with the desire for children. God, I have served you so faithfully. I've been so obedient with you. Why don't you give me the things that I want? And like this older brother, his speech, and if those are our words, our heart gives us away. It's true, he hasn't physically abandoned his father like this younger son. And it's true that he's kept up with the outward obligations and duties as sons, but did you catch what he said? Notice, he says, I've served you for many years, but it's not out of love. It's not out of joy. Instead, he calls this years of service as bad as slavery. I've slaved for you for many years. 
In addition, did you catch that this coveted celebration that he wants doesn't even include his father? He doesn't say, Dad, you haven't given me a feast that I can celebrate and rejoice with you. He says, no, you haven't even given me a goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. The son does not care about his father. He's only concerned with what he can get out of the father. In reality, the hearts of the two brothers are identical. His actions, though subtle, have been just as rebellious and shameful as the younger brothers. They each resented their father's authority and they both sought ways to get out from that authority. Each one has rebelled. One did so by being overtly quite bad. But this older brother did so covertly by being quite good, at least outwardly speaking. Both sons were alienated far from the father's hearts, and both of them are lost sons. Just stop and sit on that for a second. Do we recognize what it is that Jesus is teaching here? This is an absolutely shocking message to those that are listening He's showing that neither of these sons loved the father. They both desired to use the father for their own self-centered ends. Rather than loving him and enjoying him and serving him because they delighted in him, what they've done is they have done so on their self-centered souls. What Jesus is teaching this audience, and particularly these grumbling Pharisees, is that you can rebel against the father and be separated him by either being really bad and shamefully breaking all of his commands, or by being really good and keeping them all diligently. What Jesus is doing is he is kind of redefining, correcting their understanding of sin and what is wrong with us. Nearly everyone, including these Pharisees, defines sin as merely just breaking God's commandments, breaking God's list of rules. But what he's shown us with this older brother is with a man that has not violated basically any of God's moral instructions, he is every bit as lost and separated from his father as his immoral brother was. It's really quite the twist of fates, isn't it? The younger brother was quite shameful. He was sort of the villain of the story at first. But he's been transformed. He's been redeemed. He's inside with the Father, partying and celebrating this great news of transformation. While this dutiful, upstanding, good works, working older brother is the one that's on the outside looking in. Well, how is this father going to respond to his older brother that has just shown his true colors? Verse 31, read with me, says this. Son, he said to him, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father responds in the most tender way possible. Our English doesn't really do justice to the tenderness that's here. The word that 
is used here, we can't really translate because there's no great term of affection that men can use with older men in English. <laughs> it just doesn't exist. But it's the most tender way that he can refer to his old son. He literally is calling him child, perhaps my, my boy, my boy, listen. Despite how shameful this son has treated his father, he responds and says, my boy, my boy, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. His love for his son is absolute and it is unconditional. What's crazy is the closest parallel that we have to this phrase in the New Testament is when Jesus is speaking about his father in John 17 where he says this, all that I have is yours and all that you have is mine. It is this unconditional, absolute, perfect relationship between father and son. Though the son has shamefully accused him of neglect and unfair treatment for all these years, the reality is he's actually had it all. But like these Pharisees, the son didn't understand the extent of his privileges. But when it's all said and done, did you guys notice? This father does not back down. Doesn't matter if his older son is incensed by his actions. The father knows that he's made a right decision by welcoming this shameful younger brother. The father has let many spiteful words fly. But did you catch the one thing that he actually corrects here? The older brother referred to his younger brother in kind of a dismissive way as this son of yours. He can't even grip it. He can't even fathom saying my brother, my flesh and blood. But here the father sets the record straight. Says this, your brother. The older brothers tried to overlook this relationship, but it is still there. And this father will not let him forget it. And no doubt this is a lesson for the Pharisees who wanted to overlook their relationship, their familial ties with these tax collectors in the crowd. What's remarkable is that Jesus leaves this story unfinished, doesn't he? We never really get to hear about the fate of this older son. Does the older son recognize his sinful ways towards his father and towards his brother? Or does he continue walking in the hardness of his heart and grumbling and anger towards the actions of his father? What's remarkable is this kind of theme of unfinished business and stories is a theme throughout Luke. It happens three other times where there's unfinished stories with characters that are confronted with sin and they are kind of left in, a, in an openness. It's open-ended. It hasn't been finished. And what's remarkable is in each one of those three stories, including this one, the unfinished character is actually a Pharisee. It's as if Jesus, is his, he's approaching the cross and he's looking at these self-righteous older brothers, these Pharisees and these scribes and these religious leaders who from the outside looking in look like they're doing all the right things. They're maintaining the sacrifices. They're the ones that know the law. They're the ones that go to the synagogues and worship. They're the ones that are going to the temple. They know the law inside and out. And from everyone looking in, it seems like, oh, this, this, these older brothers are righteous. But as Jesus is going to the cross, it's almost like he's trying to show them you are outside and you are looking in. 
Though you might appear to be doing the right things and you're maybe doing some things faithfully, you don't actually love the Father. Instead, those that you look down with anger and resentment, they're the true sons of Abraham by faith and repentance. Maybe you're here today and it's hitting you for the first time that you've actually been looking and acting like an older brother in this parable. You've grown up and you've known that you're supposed to do the right things. You know when you're supposed to go to church. You know you're supposed to read the Bible. You know you're supposed to love others as you have been loved. But it's hitting you that the primary reason that you're doing these good works is not because you delight in the Father, but it's because you want what the Father can give you. That he will somehow owe you something for your good works. I pray that you will see from this parable that if this is you, Jesus is showing that you are in a dangerous place. You might think you are a son of God, but you are actually standing on the outside looking in. I call you to examine your hearts and question yourself. Why is it that you do the things that you do? Do you follow Christ because you actually love him? Or is it merely just an obligation for you because you know it's the right thing to do? Do you worship because you're actually in awe of your Savior? Or do you serve simply because you want the eternal life that comes with it? Church, I pray that we would be those who rejoice in the extravagant love of the Father. We tend to make this parable primarily about the sons, even the title. It's the parable of the prodigal son, when ultimately it's really a story about the extravagant love of a father who's reconciled, who's offered forgiveness and redemption and restoration. You know, I think all of us in this room, whether we care to admit it or not, we've all struggled with either being the prodigal son or that self-righteous older brother, or perhaps even both. But just like the father in this parable, though we've acted shamefully before God and we've disgraced him with our actions, he has responded with patience and grace and mercy. Like this father, he is the one that always seeks us out in our sin. He's the one that doesn't just seek us out. He's the one that has graciously provided by the means by which we can be redeemed and transformed. Let us be those that respond appropriately to this extravagant love. Not because it's our duty, though it is, but because it is our delight. Will you guys stand and pray with me? Father, we praise you for your extravagant love. You are so good to us. Father, despite the shameful ways that we've treated you and dishonored your name, approached you with self-righteousness and with the same sort of attitude that we have somehow been treated unfairly by you, 
like this older brother, God, you are more than gracious to us. You provide for us more than we could ever deserve or want. So, Lord, I just pray that you would help our hearts to see that. Father, that we would see your goodness and your grace. That we would not treat you with an air of self-righteousness, thinking that we can somehow earn your favor with faithfulness and obedience. God, but that we would respond with obedience because of faith, because of what you have done on our behalf through your son. Lord, so help us to be a people that marvel at this extravagant love, but help us to be a people that proclaim this extravagant love to a lost and dying world. We thank you so much for this parable, Lord. We thank you so much for all the lessons that it teaches us. God, may they take root in our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well.